Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. Um, so I'm going to just announce our um, uh, CME code for the folks who are watching from off-site. So the code today is ZKV3, ZKV3. And, um, and I'll put a, a brief reminder into that today's um, Grand Rounds will apply towards your opioid CME credit, required opioid CME credit, um, when you do your reporting for um, the New Hampshire Board. Um, we believe also for the Maine and Vermont Boards, for those of you who may have licenses in other states. So, um, so that's a bonus for today. Um, and with that, I am delighted to introduce our speaker, Dr. Richard Barth. Dr. Barth is a professor of surgery and the section chief for general surgery here at DHMC. He's a graduate of Princeton University and of Harvard Medical School. He trained at New England Deaconess and the National Cancer Institute before coming to Dartmouth 25 years ago. And since that time, he's made important contributions um, to every aspect of our mission as an academic medical center. He is a respected and highly productive clinician, a valued teacher and mentor, a true bench to bedside researcher, and a leader in um, both the Department of Surgery and the Cancer Center. And although the primary focus of his work um, as both a clinician and an investigator has been in the areas of surgical oncology and cancer immunology, today he's going to share with us um, his work on an equally important um, and timely topic, um, strategies to reduce excessive opioid prescribing. So maybe I should fix this first before I ask you. <laughs> uh, I'm going to not download the updates because we cool. don't see that. So, so with that, please um, join me in welcoming Dr. Barth to Medicine Grand Rounds. Okay. Um, thank you very much, uh, Kelly. And so I'm glad you guys all get a bonus to have your CME taken care of. And I know there's a lot of excitement today because it's match day and everything. So um, hopefully you can get the day started off on an exciting note too with this uh, with this talk. So. Um, you know, people might wonder, well, why did you start looking into opioid problem at all? And, um, you know, now that our, our three boys are out of the house and my wife and I are empty nesters, I'll come home and we'll have dinner and, you know, the news will be on in the background and basically, you know, it'll be just every night we just saw things about the opioid epidemic. You know, it's just like this is, uh, you know, a major problem. And, you know, this is a, a picture of, um, of people who have died of opioid overdoses um, in New Hampshire. And, you know, just look at it. It's just, it's just all kids, you know. It's all young, young adults. Um, and, you know, since I started becoming interested in this, you know, there's, I just, the more and more stories of people whose, you know, child was a you know, really good athlete and they got an injury and then they got some opioids and before you know it, they were a long-term user and then they <clears throat> overdosed and died. And, uh, and I just said, well, there's got to be, I have to be able to make some difference in this, right? It's something, I prescribe a lot of opioids as a surgeon. I've got to be able to, you know, make a difference in this. So, you know, I'm only up just one slide on, on the epidemic. Um, but, uh, you know, opioid deaths have quadrupled in the last 15 years. Um, so this is from the New England Journal. Um, you can see that these are deaths per 100,000 people, and the percentage has gone way up. These are prescription opioids. Um, and there's, uh, it's uh, about 19,000 die in the U.S. annually of prescription opioids. It's like 33,000 of opioids overall die annually. 400 in New Hampshire. There are 115 people die every day of opioid abuse in the United States. That's a lot, you know. Um, and linked with that has been an increase in prescribing. So over the last 15 years, opioid prescribing has also um, gone quadrupled. And in fact, there's about, you know, just a little under one prescription per person, um, you know, of opioids per year, um, which is just amazing, if you, you know, if you think about it. So, so this link then between increasing opioid prescribing and increasing opioid overdose deaths has led both the FDA and the Surgeon General to kind of say that the crisis will continue unabated unless clinicians stop prescribing opioids far in excess of the clinical need. The question becomes, you know, what is the, what is the clinical need? Um, and that's what we wanted to look into a little bit more here. So surgeons play an important role in this process. So we, only, we prescribe about 25, 20 to 25% of the opioids that are prescribed um, as surgeons. Um, but that's, that's a significant chunk. Um, uh, and what we don't realize, I think, is that 
prescribing opioids for our patients has risks for our patients themselves. So we weren't, when I was in medical school, you know, 30 years ago, I wasn't taught this. Basically, I was taught that if you give people opioids for acute pain, it's not going to be a problem. They're not going to get addicted or they're not going to have long-term use problems. But that's not true. And I'll show you on the next slide. There are a bunch of studies that refute that. But basically, <clears throat> people who undergo general surgical operations have a relative risk that's two to three times higher than the general population of becoming chronic opioid users. And overall, about 5 to 10% of opioid-naive patients will become chronic users after they're prescribed opioids for surgery. So there's, the prop, so there's the risk for our individual patients, but then there's also the fact that if there are opioids that are unused, that sit around the medicine cabinet or wherever, they can get diverted to others, and then it's others then that um, use those pills, okay, to support their habits. So a lot of um, users get their drugs by diversion of prescription opioids that just weren't used. So to try to prevent all this, we want to just give the right number of opioids to, to patients and then try to make sure they dispose of them in an, an FDA-approved manner. So that's our, our real main goal here is prevention. So here are those studies that have kind of looked at this now, and you can see there are, you know, it's like seven different studies here that um, involve thousands of patients. And they've just looked at, okay, what percent of patients then who are opioid naive, who had surgery, become chronic users? And the definition of chronic users differs a little, whether they're on opioids a year after surgery, whether they got a whole, you know, more than five refills in the subsequent year, or just whether they're getting new prescriptions you know, three months or, or longer out after their surgery. But, you know, the numbers are around between 5 and 10%. Um, you know, and so this is pretty good evidence that, you know, the patients end up being, you know, a significant proportion of patients become long-term users after surgery. So here's my son, Matt. So uh, Matt's my middle son and, and, his, and his girlfriend. And Matt had, um, Matt had surgery a couple years ago. He was over in Saratoga Springs, and he was living with four other guys, and he developed acute appendicitis. So he went in, the surgeon... Over in Saratoga Springs, did a laparoscopic appendectomy, took his appendix out. Next morning, he's, he was going home, and my wife, who's a, a school nurse, went over to pick him up. And he was given a prescription for 50 oxycodone when he was going home. And so, you know, my wife was like, no, you're going to take that prescription. You told the surgeon, you're taking that back, and you're going to write him for five. That's it. You know, so, you know, he did. And um, Matt used two of them, you know. But, you know, I'm kind of wondering, you know, what, what if Matt had gotten all 50, you know, and, uh, and he really liked these oxycodones. And, you know, so... Well, you know, maybe he'd be a long-term user now. You know, maybe the 48 other pills he didn't use would have been diverted, you know, by the other kids that, you know, live in his, live in his uh, house or something. So I think this touch, you know, this touches every, a lot of people's families, you know. And um, so, all right. <clears throat> so the problem for surgeons then, obviously we have a concern for the individual patient, right? So um, is, why are we overprescribing? Well, we want to minimize acute postoperative pain, um, you know, in patients. We want, we want to take care of our patient's pain. We want to avoid the need for patients to have to return for clinic for a refill prescription. Um, uh, you know, but then, but we also have responsibility for population health. You know, we, we need to minimize diversion, overdose, and addiction. Um, we need to um, provide patients with the lowest appropriate dose. You know, so what is the balance? What's the ideal number to prescribe? And that's what we don't know, okay? So when I started looking at this back in 2015, there were really very few studies on this. Um, you know, so there were just, like, there were these four studies. This was it, you know? So there was some studies in, in taking out wisdom teeth, um, a couple in hand, and, and one urology um, uh, paper. But there, was, there were no studies looking at the best prescribing practice in general surgery. So I said, okay, that's something we can do. So basically now what I'm going to describe for you, the rest of this talk, is, is the results that we published in three different papers. Um, so a couple of papers in Annals of Surgery and one in Journal of American College of Surgeons, which is just going to come out in May. Um, this work has been done by myself in conjunction with Maureen Hill and Ryland Stuckey, two of our um, surgery uh, residents. Um, Michelle McMahon um, was one of uh, a Geisel medical student. Julia Beeman is a data manager in, in general surgery. And, and Sarah Billmeyer, one of our other attendings, worked on these um, with me as well. So in our, our first analysis then was we wanted to just take the five most common outpatient operations that we did in uh, June, between June and December 2015, and these are partial mastectomy, partial mastectomy with sentinel node biopsy, lap coles, lap inguinal hernia repairs, open inguinal hernia repairs, and we just looked at postoperative opioid prescription data. We got all this from the data at Linux Institute here at DH, and then opioid refill data. Um, we were, were obtained on all the patients. So 
patients, so we excluded patients with, um, who are chronic opioid users and people with complications from their surgeries, okay? And basically then just, um, so we wanted to basically looked at opioid naive patients and we called patients in and asked them how many opioids they ended up taking. So here's some of our data then. Um, uh, here's all the operations that we looked at across the top and these are the numbers of cases performed. Um, you can see we looked at about 700 patients. Um, we excluded about 8%, 5% were excluded because they were chronic opioid users or abusers and um, you know we had a few complications, uh, so 3% had complications. So we analyzed about 640 patients then. And um, basically almost everyone got opioids, okay? So every, we were prescribing opioids for everybody. You know, so here's the partial mastectomy patients. Um, oh, about three quarters of them got opioids. Partial mastectomy sentinel node, about 88%. And everybody that got lap coles or lapping wall hernias were prescribed opioids. And uh, here's the means and then the median. So about 20, 20 uh, this is a five milligram oxycodone equivalent uh, were given and 30 for these patients. But look at these ranges, right? So some people after they had inguinal hernia repairs were given 120, you know, oxycodone pills. You know, and even the range for partial mastectomies, as many as 60 were being given. You know, it's pretty dramatic. And when you see ranges like that, you know, a lot of work's been done here. There's a lot of variability like that. We probably just don't know what, what we're doing really, you know? So, um, all right, so here's, um, here's some of our data then on how many were prescribed and how many were actually used, okay? So I'll, I'm gonna show this for each of the different operations. So this is the partial mastectomy, and in graph A here are the opioids prescribed, okay? So 175 patients, and this is, I don't know how well, hopefully you can see this in the back pretty well, but there's, this is the percent of the total population that was prescribed that number on the x-axis. So you know, about 25% weren't prescribed any, and you know, about 15% were prescribed between um, 16 and 20 there, et cetera, okay? And then what we show in the bottom graph is how many were actually used, okay? So you can see then the difference there that, oh, about 75% didn't use any, you know, um, a small proportion used between six and 10, and it goes like that. So you can see the difference between prescribed and used and I'll just show you that for each of the operations. Here's the um, partial mastectomy sentinel node biopsy patients. That's the number that were prescribed, and this is how many were used. Here's the lap coli patients. Here's how many were prescribed. Again, a lot around 30 range, but you can see as many as up to 100 there. And then here's how many were actually used, much less. Lapping inguinal hernias prescribed and used and inguinal hernia repairs um, prescribed and used. So overall then, about a quarter of the, pill, the pills that were prescribed were used. So obviously we're over-prescribing. Um, so you know, three quarters of the pills weren't used by, um, by these patients. So then we wanted to say, well, what is the right number to prescribe? Okay, let's, let's figure out a way to do that. So we'll just say, okay, let's determine how many pills you'd have to prescribe to fulfill the opioid use or need of about 80, at least 80% of our patients. So, so this is taken from the lap coli patients graph here. And uh, we said, okay, if we give them 15 pills, then 84% of the patients um, used you know, 15 or less. So if we give them 15 pills, all of our lap colis, then we'll take care of 85% of the patient's uh, needs. So we came up with guidelines then, you know, and said, okay, well, here's, here's how, this is what's actually being prescribed right now, a median of 20 for the, the breast operations and 30 for the other ones. We'd say, we'd say to, if you want to take care of 80%, at least 80% of the patient's needs, this is how many you should prescribe instead. So five for the partial mastectomies, 10 for these, and 15 for those other guys. And if you did that, overall, you'd, you'd have about a 57% decrease in the number of opioids that were prescribed. All right, so what did we do with that? So that's, that basically came up with that. We got that data back in like uh, early 2016. And so then I just gave talks like this. So I gave grant rounds to general sur to, to surgery. Um, we had section meetings. I met with all the residents, you know, and we kind of just really informed them about this. We sent emails out about the paper, um, you know, at resident teaching sessions, but really we just, just, just informed people of the results, okay? Um, at the same time, um, we did sort of recommend using acetaminophen and ibuprofen first, then opioids. And I, I think there's a, a lot of data that supports doing that. Okay, so Cochrane analysis, analyses, you know, I think are, are quite good in, in many uh, ways. And um, a couple of their analyses, which are down here, looked at the question, okay, they tried to summarize the studies that looked at, okay, what percent of patients will have a 50% reduction in their acute pain? 
And they looked at the, the different meds that were different. So if you use the combination of ibuprofen and acetaminophen, well, just about 73% of patients would have at least a 50% reduction in their acute pain for six hours. And when you compare ibuprofen alone, 50%. Oxycodone, 23%. You know, placebo was 17%. So oxycodone alone was barely better than, you know, probably no better than placebo in causing a 50% reduction in pain for six hours. And look how much better ibuprofen and acetaminophen were. You know, so this is, you know, this is data that's, that's been out there a while, actually. Those are out there 2013, you know, but I don't know. People just aren't picking up on this. You know, there's a recent paper um, that looked from the emergency room. It's a, it's a study out of Albany where basically patients came into the emergency room. They had extremity pain, and they were either given um, ibuprofen and acetaminophen or um, they were given um, acetaminophen and one of three different opioids. It was all blinded, you know, so there was those four different pills that were given out, and then they saw how much pain they had. And basically, the ibuprofen and acetaminophen were just as good as the ibuprofen and any of the other opioids. So, you know, I think um, this combination, which we can use in most patients who are just having short-term, you know, sort of uh, um, analgesic needs um, after surgery, um, I think, you know, we, we, wanted, we just recommended using these first and saying to patients, okay, if this, you know, and scheduled, not PRN, just scheduled, you take you know, appropriate doses of acetaminophen and ibuprofen first, and then take your opioids if you need it after that. So that's what we did, sort of just did these teaching sessions, talked about this a little bit, talked about setting patients' expectations. Okay, I think it's really important that, you know, let patients know that, hey, you know, we've actually studied this. And in fact, you know, you don't really need 30 oxycodone. You know, I, actually, my breast patients now, I don't really give any of them any opioids anymore, actually. It's even less than the 5 and 10 that we've recommended. I just tell them I've studied this. 90% of the patients don't need it. You're not going to need it, and that's that. So, um, and they don't, you know. So anyway, but we, we, um, we observed um, opioid prescribing patterns then for the same operations that, um, from June to September. So, and there's a total of 224 patients. We collected data the same way we had collected it before. And what do we find? Okay, so just by telling surgeons about this, okay, here's the, these are the, Operations here, same operations, right? Here's how many, the mean number of opioid pills we were prescribing before. And then here's after education, okay? Dramatically decreased the mean number prescribed in, for all these operations. You know, the p-values for all of these are really, really low. The median number went from 20 to 5, 20 to 10, 30 to 15. And look at the ranges. They, you know, here are the huge ranges before. The ranges dropped dramatically, right? So, so you know, pretty, you know, really powerful message about just, you know, Surgeons, doctors are, are evidence-based. You know, I mean, you give us good evidence about something that's going to change what we're going to do. You know, we didn't. I didn't have to, you know, um, do anything else. I mean, basically, I just had to tell people about this. You know, and in fact, we could see there was. Um, we've done a little more analysis on this. There were 11 surgeons, all 11 that prescribed a lot of these pills. All 11, boom, statistically significant decrease. You know, so. Uh, and then overall, you know, we, we actually saw a 53% decrease in the number of actual opioid pills that were prescribed, okay? So just with this educational intervention. <clears throat> All right, so um, we're, you know, you might want to ask, though, then, where, did we take care of the patient's pain, right? We were only prescribing enough for 80%. So I warned my nurse in the clinic. I told Lori, I said, Lori, I go, you, you know, you might get a lot more phone calls. You know, there might be patients out there who aren't getting enough opioids, and, you know, they might be in pain, and you might get more calls and let me know, and... Well, it didn't happen, okay? So, you know, of the 224 patients in this study, you know, again, it was fascinating is they only used 34% of their prescribed opioids. So even though they were prescribed half the amount we were prescribing them before, we were still over-prescribing because 65% weren't being used, right? And only one of these patients required an opioid refill, okay? So, you know, the answer is yes. We are, we can, we can dramatically decrease the number of opioids prescribed and still take care of patients' pain. All right, well, what about, you know, sort of the, the prescriptions in excess of our guidelines? So we went back and looked and said, oh, what, you know, what happened to, why were these, you know, what was going on with patients who were prescribed more pills than we sort of had recommended in our guidelines? Well, you know, there were a total of um, 34 providers, all total, um, who wrote prescriptions, including attendings, residents, et cetera. And, um, you know, of the attendings, about 40% were excessive. 20 Of the residents, about 35% were excessive. So there wasn't any difference with residents versus attendings. What we found, actually, though, there were just four providers who wrote for half of all the excessive prescriptions. And we kind of drilled down that a little bit. And two of them were fellows, okay, who came in after we did all the educational stuff, right? So they just didn't get the message, you know, and they were prescribing how they 
were taught back, you know, in their residency or whatever, you know. So, uh, all right. So then how, how do we do on the sort of acetaminophen and, and uh, ibuprofen um, part of this? Well, um, so we, you know, when we did these, we, when we were calling all these patients and finding out how many pills they used after we asked them, okay, were you using acetaminophen or, or acetaminophen ibuprofen? And so these are the patients after having partial mastectomies done. And you can see that, oh, about three-quarters of them didn't take any opioids at all, okay, um, that all of them took either acetaminophen or non-steroidal, so that was pretty good. You know, we got everybody taking at least one. And about 40% took both. Again, I think this is optimal practice, taking both. Um, none of them were just taking opioid alone, so that's, that was pretty good. So we got the message through to them. Um, but then you know, some of the other operations, it wasn't quite as good. So here's after lap coles. Um, again, uh, you know, only about a quarter of the patients didn't use any opioids at all. 60% took either acetaminophen or ibuprofen, and only about, you know, 15% took both, like we were hoping for, you know, sort of. So we still have room to improve, okay, um, on, on that score. So just to talk a little bit then about this outpatient work then, um, basically, to summarize, this, just this educational intervention re resulted in a marked decrease in opioids prescribed for five different general surgery operations. The number of pills prescribed decreased by more than a half. All the operations showed a decrease, and there was much less variability. We didn't make the patient's pain worse. Um, only one of 24 obtained refills. Um, and we, um, although a lot used either acetaminophen or ibuprofen, we still have an opportunity here because only about 20% used both. All right, so the next thing we wanted to look at then is patients who are inpatient. So these are patients who had big operations, um, you know, and are going to be in the hospital for a while. Um, and then when they're discharged home, okay, how many opioids do you write for them? So no one knows that either. No one knows how many to send them home with. Okay, so, um, you know, they're in New England, all the states have laws that limit the number of pills prescribed to a seven-day supply. Okay. So if you're actually, though, the, the resident or the attending or whatever writing, okay, how many pills they should go home with, how much is a seven-day supply? There's ambiguity there, okay? Is seven days, well, you're going to take one every six hours while they're awake, which would be three a day or, tw or 21 pills, or they're going to take two every four hours, you know, for the whole time, which is 84 pills. Do you assume the patients will use less pills every day? I don't know. Is seven days the right number, or is it five, or is it ten? No one knows, okay? So... So, you know, this is, it's way too vague. These laws are way too vague, okay, to, to try to comply with or to enforce or something, right? So what we wanted to do then is we said, okay, well, let's, let's look at our six most common inpatient operations we do, you know, and these are people that are having um, bariatric surgery, they're having, uh, like, misinfundoplications, other gastric operations, liver surgery, pancreas surgery, colon surgery, hernia repairs, 30, 333 patients, again, excluded patients with chronic opioid users, people with complications, folks discharged from a nursing facility because we really uh, couldn't um, keep track of exactly uh, how many of the pills they were given at the nursing facilities. Um, about 85% were sent home with an opioid prescription. Again, most, all right, being sent home with opioids. And I was um, happy about our methods here. So we actually gathered data on home opioid use by 90% of our patients. Okay, so we sent them all a letter. About half of them sent the, you know, a questionnaire, kind of about half of them sent the data back on their questionnaire. The rest we called, and we, you know, we just kept calling them until we got results. Um, and so we, we know, really, we have good data on how much they use at home. So we broke our analysis up into two groups. Um, one group was people who went home the day after their operation, and then others that went home um, two days uh, uh, or, or longer um, after their surgery. We, again, looked at the home opioid use of the people who were discharged from post-up day one. In post-up day two, we, um, or later, we wanted to analyze the factors that were associated with their home opioid use. And so one of the key factors we identified um, was the inpatient use on the day prior to discharge. So we just wanted to know, okay, how many, how many pills were they given the day before they went home? You know, will that predict how many they use when they're at home? Okay, and then we looked at their home opioid use. So here's for the patients discharged on post-op day one, okay? So you had, you know, say, um, it's, you know, whatever, one of those, one of those operations, and uh, you, were, you know, were able to be discharged um, the day, day after. And you can see here, then, is this is the percentage of patients, then, that took this many opioid pills. Um, you can see that, you know, a lot, 42% or so, didn't take any, um, and that overall, I can tell you about 85% took 15 or less, okay? Um, if they were discharged on post-op day one. 
And this is, then we did this univariate and multivariate analysis of factors associated with home opioid use for the patients who were discharged on post-op day two or later, okay? And we found two really important principles, I think. One is that the number of pills taken the day prior to discharge was the best predictor of how many they used at home, okay? This isn't going to be a surprise to anybody, right? Any surgeon will tell you, yeah, this makes total sense, okay? And the second thing was then that the opioid use at home after this inpatient admission was independent of the operation performed. So it didn't matter whether they had colon surgery, liver surgery, pancreas, whatever it was, this, you know, this held, okay, this first principle held, and so it didn't really matter what operation was, which makes it a lot simpler if you're trying to figure out, you know, how many to send home, uh, patients to send home with, uh, how many pills. All right, so here's our, here's our um, uh, analysis here, and you can see the different variables we looked at are over on this side. Um, so we looked at age, gender, surgery type, um, length of stay, and uh, number of pills taken the day prior to discharge. And so what you can see then in univariate analysis, age mattered. So um, the uh, older patients um, ended up taking less pills. So this is if you're 60 or older, you took less pills than if you were younger. Um, the uh, gender actually mattered. Males took a little less than females, but surprisingly. Um, length of stay, if you were in a little longer, um, you ended up taking less than if you were in for a shorter length of stay. Um, and then the number of pills taken the day prior to discharge was really important. So if you took um, zero the day prior to discharge, well, then the mean number taken was one uh, after you were home. If you took one to three, it was eight. And if you took four or more, it was 21 pills. Okay, so that was a really significant predictor. And in fact, in multivariate analysis, when all these were um, put into the, uh, into the formula, basically then this was still highly statistically significant, the number of pills taken prior to discharge. Um, the, um, uh, the, the age also stayed uh, statistically significant multivariate analysis, but what you notice is that the surgery type then really didn't matter, okay, either in univariate or multivariate analysis. And so here's the data on this, so that if you had no opioid pills taken the day prior to discharge, this is your home opioid use after discharge, how many pills you took. So you can see that, you know, about 85% didn't take any opioids if you weren't given any opioids the day prior to discharge. If you were given one to three, if you took one to three opioid pills the day prior to discharge, then here's how many they used at home. Um, if you draw boxes around this, 85% took 15 or less. And then here's if you took four or more the day prior to discharge, again, 85% took 30 or less. So pretty easy then to come up with a guideline then to satisfy 85% of the patient's home opioid um, usage needs. So if you were being discharged on post-op day one, well, if you send them home with 15, that will take care of 85%. For patients who are discharged on post-op day two or later, then you just look at the number of pills used on the day prior to discharge. If it was zero, you send them home with zero. One to three, 15, and greater than four, you send them home with 30. Okay, so it's very easy. I, you know, any, any, and even any surgeon can remember this, you know. Um, and it's, uh, it's easy data to, uh, you know, to get from the patient's medical record. Um, and it doesn't matter what operation you had done. You can just kind of um, put this right in there. So I think it's a really easy to use um, guideline to, um, to send uh, patients home with. So what, what if we use this guideline? Well, if we use this guideline, we cut the number of opioids prescribed then for these patients by about 40%. So we could have a pretty dramatic effect, again, on the number of opioids that were prescribed if these guidelines were used. And so even this said, I think that uh, these guidelines will um, still overestimate home opioid needs um, for several reasons. So one is um, the use of non-opioid pain medication. So again, um, you know, as you saw in our outpatient study, only, um, well, only about 20% used both acetaminophen and ibuprofen. When we looked at that for our inpatients, um, you know, again, only about a quarter used both acetaminophen and ibuprofen. So if we got more patients doing this, I think we could, you know, even prescribe less, right? For elderly, we could prescribe less. We, so that was a, you know, sort of a, um, a um, statistically significant um, factor that, um, that we could, we could uh, also um, modify the guidelines with a little bit. Um, we could also set the bar lower and, you know, e-prescribe refills. So we can all e-prescribe opioids now, you know, which we weren't able to do, you know, a year ago. But if you set the, um, you set, say we want to try to take care of 65% of the patient's needs, then you'll decrease the number prescribed actually by about 60%. Okay, so we could send it, set the bar a little lower. The people who have, have you know, a little more opioid needs, okay, fine, you prescribe them. They don't have to come all the way back here to the clinic to get more opioids. You can, you can just do that. 
And then this was really interesting, too, is that um, we, we tried to look at, well, what about the patients who used, you know, more opioids than our guidelines, that 15 percent, you know, group of patients? You know, what was the story with them? So we looked at those outliers, and there were a total of 40 patients then who took more pills than the recommended prescription amount that we came up with in our guidelines. And we, we actually called them all back, and we asked them, you know, what, why were you taking more? <clears throat> And over half of them were taking reasons, opioids for reasons other than their surgical pain, okay? So 18% were taking it to go to sleep, okay? Another substantial um, proportion were taking it because, well, the doctor wrote me a prescription for 30 of these. I figured I had to take every one of them, okay? You know, just like, you know, your mom tells you you have to eat everything on the plate to have a happy plate or whatever, okay? So, or, you know, you have to take, take all your antibiotics, right? You know, it's, just, it's the same thing. Oh, I was prescribed this many opioids. I need to take all these opioids. Um, you know, some were taking it for non-surgical pain. They were afraid, indigestion, you know. So less than half were taking it for actually post-operative pain. So I think our, you know, I'm not worried about this 15%. You know, I think, in fact, it's probably going to be maybe 5% of the patients. If you, if you try to get them 85% taken care of, I think maybe 5% will have, you know, opioid needs more than, um, uh, than we need, but, but then we prescribed for it. But, you know, we're gonna, we'll be studying that in a prospective uh, you know, fashion as well. All right, so then the other big question is, again, is, uh, is what happens to those excess pills, right? So for overprescribing, you know, um, they've got the excess pills left over. What do they do? What do patients do with them? So we asked them all. You know, we asked what, as part of our survey, we asked what do you do with them? So, you know, there are, different, there are FDA-approved ways of disposing of opioids, okay? So you can bring them back to the police station or the fire department, you know, and drop them in the drop box. Um, or you can um, uh, take the pills and you put them in a little plastic bag and pour water in there, okay, and then add dirt or kitty litter, and you can just put it in your garbage can, okay? So those are, are um, the New Hampshire um, Board of Pharmacy and, and the FDA all say this is okay. Those are, um, you know, good ways to prescribe them. So in our first outpatient study, only about 9% of our patients actually disposed of them, you know, in an FDA-appropriate manner. In our inpatient study one year later, it was about 19%. Um, this has been reviewed by a group at Johns Hopkins, kind of looked at studies. There were like five or six studies now that have looked at what, how people dispose of these. And uh, this, this, was the, this is the highest number. Everyone else was down around 10%. Okay, so it's very uncommon for patients to dispose of them in an FDA-approved way. We gave patients information, you know, sort of um, about how to dispose of them. Uh, you know, and saw some increase here, but uh, obviously there's a lot more work, right, that can be done um, on, on this, um, on, in this area. And, <clears throat> you know, I don't know if you're aware, but our, our pharmacy is supposed to be getting a drop box in our outpatient pharmacy. Um, so I was told that it was going to happen at the end of January, and I, I've actually been going down there every other week kind of looking to see if they've got it yet, but it's not there yet, but I'm told I'm going to get an email when it's there because they got sick of me, I think, coming down and keeping asking when it was going to be there, but it's going to be there really soon, and so, um, so we're going to, um, you know, going to be starting a study where we really tell patients that there's a pharmacy, you know, here at the hospital, so when you come back to see your, patient, your doctor for a post-operative check, what you can do is you can just drop off those extra you know, your extra pills, you know, in the pharmacy. Um, and, you know, you, and you don't have to go to the police station. I don't think people like going to the police station or the fire station to drop off their excess opioids. You know, they feel, I don't know, funny about that or, you know, or self-conscious about that. So I bet, I bet, this is a hypothesis, you know, that a lot more patients will be willing to drop it off um, in the pharmacy uh, here at, um, at DH when they bring back their pills. Anyway, what are other things that are being done? Well, there's take-back days. You know, the state has uh, huge take-back days where it's well-publicized and, they have collection areas where they can take back extra opioids. Jean Liu over at the White River VA has got an interesting thing going on over there. She pays the vets, actually, to bring back their opioids. So she pays them $5 per pill, up to a $50 max, I think, um, to, uh, to bring back their unused opioids. And, you know, she's been get, gathering data on that as part of a, a study over at the VA. Um, so... Uh, you know, I don't know if you actually really have to pay people to do this. I think they'll, if you just inform patients about how it's not safe to just have these around, you know, it's in your interest to get rid of the ones that you're not using. And actually just to set in the mindset of patients that, you know, this opioid prescription you're going to get for this operation is for this operation. You know what I mean? It's, it's not like to keep forever. You know, I think a lot of people can say, oh, I paid for those opioids. I'm going to keep them because if I, you know, hurt my arm, you know, uh, you know two weeks from now I can use them and stuff. I think you have to sort of, again, get in patients' mind that, okay, this is, you know, part of this operation. We want to take care of your pain for this operation, and then just get rid of them. <clears throat> anyway. 
All right, so uh, as far as the inpatient prescription stuff then goes, the conclusions um, was that the strongest predictor of home opioid use was inpatient use the day prior to discharge, that um, use at home was independent of the operation performed. We've established a guideline for discharge opioid prescribing that's easy to use and remember, and um, use of this guideline will greatly decrease the number of opioids prescribed and will also um, take care of uh, patients' pain. So, um, so that's pretty much what I have to talk to you guys about. Um, there's, um, there's been, a, you know, some interest, I think, among um, other folks here at Dartmouth about this. Um, the, um, Dave Jevsevar and uh, his uh, group in Ortho have looked at their prescribing, and, and they published a paper that came out about a month ago in their um, lead Ortho journal where they've um, basically documented that uh, a lot of opioids are prescribed for, for like, their total knees and hips. A median of 90 um, 5-milligram oxycodone pills are prescribed. Um, uh, and 37% of their patients need refills. Um, uh, but they're still overprescribing. They identified about 60% of their pills that aren't used. Um, they weren't able in that paper to come up with guidelines sort of like this. Which, so I think it's they've sort of identified a problem. But, but I don't, after reading it, I was like, I'm not sure exactly how many I would prescribe, you know, for these patients going forward, you know. So I think one of the nice things I think about this is that it, we were able to really establish guidelines so we could, um, you know, help other surgeons kind of figure out um, what an appropriate uh, prescribing amount would be. Um, so, anyway, and our group in, in Jogi Vachuri, one of our colorectal surgeons, has also looked at this for our patients who are having um, perianal operations and has sort of uh, looked at a number of prescribed and used and has sort of got some optimal stuff for that. So there's... Um, you know, there's been interest here, and, and uh, you know, I've reviewed papers from several other institutions who are also looking at this, like in the acute care population, um, the trauma population, et cetera. So I think there's a, there's a, lot, of, um, there's a lot of interest. And um, the group at UVM actually has recently completed this analysis that uh, really confirms a lot of the stuff that we've, uh, we've shown. Um, so they've done some really nice work up there, too, that's going to be published pretty soon as well. So anyway, happy to answer any questions I have. Yes. Do you think the methodology that you use to set guidelines, I'm sure that it's, it's arbitrary, but uh, um, you know, by decreasing with the very little um, use for, ex for uh, refills or uh, the, the need for that and possibly even being able to go further, um, that that's the, the, the major takeaway from, from this that can be generalized to other specialties? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think, again, we, we did, we was kind of arbitrary. We said at 80, 85 percent or whatever. But I, like I said, I think that those, um, we, we did, we weren't deluged by that 20 percent or that 15 percent um, for a lot of those reasons that I was mentioning. And I think we can, uh, we can, you know, sort of cut it down even further, the number that we're, so I think these are, these are like conservative guidelines, you know, in terms of how many we can, we can do. We've just, um, you know, we've, we just uh, went in with Michigan um, on a big uh, CTSA grant um, to be able to study this prospectively. Um, we just submitted that a couple of weeks ago. Um, and there we were looking at some of those laparoscopic operations, and we're, they're gonna, patients are going to be randomized to either 20 pills or 5. Um, and then there's a, there's a um, special charcoal-activated bag that, um, that uh, they've piloted it out there that we can give to patients, and they can just dump their pills in that and throw it in the garbage after um, as a, another way to dispose of things. So what we're trying to do is get, you know, to, to take care of patients' pain for that acute episode, um, but then get rid of the unused or excess pills in a way to try to prevent, you know, those people from being long-term users. And really, the, the important outcome measure, I think, probably the most important outcome measure is going to be, you know, those percentage of patients who are using, still using opioids at a year out or whatever, you know. So we have to try to identify those people that, you know, are really at risk for opioid overdosing and dying, you know. So it's, um, uh, you know, so I, I think, uh, so in that study, we're, I'm writing a study that we're going to be doing here, but then the, um, to see whether this inpatient use is, is um, so it can be generalized across all operations. So, you know, vascular, thoracic, urologic, ENT, you know, et cetera, cardiac, you know, whether, whether this fits or not, you know, for, for other specialties. Um, so that's something I'm really interested in. Um, but I'm also interested in if whether we can, by doing these strategies, whether we can really impact on the proportion of patients who are still taking it um, out at a year, you know? Yes? It's intriguing about the number of pills people take the day before discharge. Have you looked at the timing if they took something the day before, the day of discharge? I can imagine someone who's 
taken one may not have missed one before they're sent home. They live an hour away, so by the time they get home, they know, quote know they need the opiate and what that has to do with. Later on. Yeah, we just kind of kept it it's pretty simple. We just looked at the, you know, the calendar day before they were discharged and, you know, so that we could do the analysis pretty easily and, and then just kind of looked at that. So we didn't go into any more detail other, other than that. Just looked at how many they took in that calendar day before they were, they were discharged. Yes. Thanks, Richard. That was terrific. Oh, thanks. Um, you know, it, it occurs to me that acute procedures sort of offer an opportunity to assess the opioid-naive patient mm -hmm. and surgery or colonoscopies or whatever it might be is a unique period. You mentioned the risk of overdose and identifying the patient who's at highest risk. Anecdotally, we have friends who come out of the colonoscopy smiling, giving more of that drug than I hate the way I feel. Mm. And I'm relatively naive personally to the literature on opioids. So is there the literature about sort of individual responses to opioids. So do some people feel dysphoric? Other people really like they have a positive effectual response. And can right. you apply that to sort of at some point in the future even sort of put it in the chart as right. well? Okay, so whenever, so, um, you know, back uh, January 1st, 2017, um, it became a mandatory requirement for anyone prescribing opioids in the state of New Hampshire. We were the 49th state to, de to, develop, to uh, develop a prescription drug monitoring program, um, you know, but it became mandatory for us to do a PDMP query on patients after, if we're prescribing them opioids, you know. Um, and uh, as part of that, there's an opioid risk tool that's sort of been validated, you know, that has different things that you have to, you know, kind of go through and it has, you know, whether they use benzodiazepines, whether they've abused opioids in the past. Um, there's nothing in there that, you know, did you take an opioid and did you feel good about it or not? You know what I mean? Like sort of, but, but I think that's an important thing, you know, because a lot of times, you know, I'll say to my patients, well, you know, I've, I've kind of been studying this and I, I really don't think you need any opioids. And they'll be like, good, I don't, I don't want any of those, you know, you know so I don't like the way I felt, you know, when I got them in the past. You know, a lot of patients respond that way. But you're right, there's, there's some patients who are just like, whoa, this is cool. You know, this, I feel pretty good on this, you know, and uh, I don't know, I think um, I'm, I don't know of any really good papers to that, you know, sort of look at that as a factor, you know, um, uh, you know, um, uh, with, re you know, with regard to long-term use. I think that's, that it's multifactorial. I think identifying that five to 10% of patients who are going to be those long-term users, right? So that's, that's, that's multifactorial, like trying to figure out all the factors are there. And I think that's really important thing to analyze going forward. So I'm hoping that having less pills around and getting rid of the ones that aren't going to be used um, will sort of minimize the number of patients that are going to be those long-term users. Um, but but understanding better who those are and like really trying to be really careful or something with them. I mean, this is kind of like universal precautions. If you if you're kind of careful with everybody, then hopefully fewer people will become the long-term users. But if you could identify those people, that that would be really helpful. I think. Yes. Did you run into trouble with NSAIDs and post-op bleeding? Or as a non-surgeon, I just don't know when yeah. my patients are okay to yeah. use NSAIDs. No, not a problem. Okay, so that's not a problem. Yeah, so I give everybody Toradol, uh, you know, intravenous, uh, you know, uh, uh, non-steroidal uh, at, at the end of the operations. I give them all Tylenol before surgery now, you know, so there's a, there's a, there's a whole, you know, we're doing... This is only part of them. It's like doing setting the patient's expectations up before the surgery. I think is really important. So I talk now. I talked. I know I didn't used to do this in the past. I'd tell them, you know, what to expect from the surgery, what the complications were. You know, when I was seeing them in the office beforehand, um, and you know, you're about your length of stay is expected about this. But now I talk to them all about opioid use too. Okay, I'm gonna say, okay, you know, you're gonna have your liver surgery. You know, and and you know, we're gonna have an epidural. You know, so we do all these other things like you know, we do blocks. We use epidurals a lot to help with um, minimizing opioids during surgery um, and, uh, and in the post-operative period. So we're doing that. It's part of it, sort of these in, um, uh, enhanced recovery um, uh, methods we're trying to use for, for patients. But setting those expectations in the clinic beforehand, I'll just say to them, you know, you, you know you're going to have this epidural for a little while, and then you know, you'll have some opioids a couple of days, but you know, you're probably not going to need much after that. And we're going to try to minimize it because of these bad side effects. I talk to patients all about this stuff now. So, you know, it's it's um, uh, um, so it's not like we're um, ignoring it or like I'm this hard, callous surgeon who's saying I'm not going to prescribe you opioids. Damn it! You know, so you know it's not that at all. You know, it's it's totally the opposite. You know, I was talking with Larry and Linda about this earlier. Is that you know so. 
other, so you might say, well, why would people not do this? Well, people might be worried about their provider satisfaction scores, right? You know, we all have our pictures and our stars, you know, right, up on our, um, on our website now, right? And, you know, if, uh, yeah, thanks to Larry. And I think it's a great thing, you know, honestly. Um, and, uh, but, you know, people are going to be worried, oh, I'm not going to have, you know, three and a half rather than four and a half stars or something because I'm a surgeon and I'm not, giving, not taking care of my patient's post-operative pain. But I don't think, you know, I really don't think that's going to happen because, if you know you engage with the patient beforehand, you tell them that you know we're going to do these these opioids aren't really so good for you for very re you know all these reasons. I mean, yeah, you need to have some. Sure, that's appropriate. We're going to give you some, but you know we're going to try to limit this, and you know we're going to use these other things, and we're going to do these other things to help try. You know, we're going to give you blocks and epidurals, and we're going to use ibuprofen and Tylenol and you know, all these things to try to minimize your pain. Well, you're more engaged with those patients, you know. Um, and then you tell them, and if you don't have enough, we'll, we'll e-prescribe you some more. You know, it's like we're not leaving you out there, you know, um, to dry, you know, with, without taking care of your pain, you know. So I don't, we're actually studying, we're studying this right now. So whether when in, those, in those exact, um, in the patients, uh, we're comparing, you know, the, the, the one time period where you're prescribing a lot, and then the next time period of those outpatient surgeries where we prescribed much less, okay, so there were 11 surgeons who did most of that operating. We're right now looking at their outpatient provider satisfaction scores to see whether, you know, all of them had statistically really big decreases in their opioids prescribed, and we're, we're looking to see if their, their, um, their provider satisfaction scores dropped at all. My hypothesis is that there's not going to be any change um, in there, but I'll probably know that next week. I'll let you know. <laughs> so... Brad. Great. Thanks. Thanks again. I mean, you have a, a knack for approaching big problems with simplicity that really gets to it. In that, in that vein, I'd love to have you come back sometime and talk about the breast tumor locator. Sure. Okay. Thanks, Brad. Yeah. A question to do with the e-prescribing, because you're, you're right. I think that's, that opens up a whole new opportunity. Yeah. And I have two okay. questions. Maybe, maybe they're a more appropriate for CMIO, CMIO. Is that something that came about epic-wide? First of all, because it's a, you know, that, that to be able to do that and not have them come yeah. back is huge. And secondly, might, might there be a, a, a trial of, of a BPA intervention as soon as you prescribe an opiate to say, reminder or, you know, consider much fewer reminder you can e-prescribe a renewal uh, uh, now and, uh, and, and see if yeah. that has an impact. Well, I think part of what you get, okay, part of what you get to read is like how how is this like um, operationalized, right? So you know, I get, basically, you know, so we, we I lectured to people, you know, I sent them emails with the guidelines, et cetera. Well, how do you operationalize? Well, so all the residents had like little smart phrase that they would pull up, you know, for these guidelines, you know. So they were going to do they they have this little smart phrase that they pulled up and it said, here's how many you prescribe for these things. You know what I mean? So that's how they did it, you know. And I think um, I think I think yeah, it'd be great if we had something built into um, you know EDH where we could um, come up with um, you know something that when people are prescribing opioids that they that it was it was a reminder or suggestions. You know what I mean? That how many prescribe? Because you know honestly, what how does this work normally? Okay, so like um, you know if, if I like two years two years ago I was going to go prescribe prescribe uh, opioids, so I I go oxycodone five milligrams, and it actually auto filled 30 into the quantity, okay, for me. I, I, that's just how it came up. It auto-filled 30, and so I was like, whoa, this is... Because if you're an intern and you're right, you don't know how many opioids to prescribe somebody, right? And if something auto-populates at 30, you're going to be like, oh, okay, I guess that's the right number, you know? So, you know, and you just do it, right? You don't ask anyone. You're embarrassed to ask your senior resident what to do or whatever. So, so um, uh, I mean, I talked to Sam Casella about that at the time, and he, he kind of changed it, but there are still some... Like, if you've already done it, um, maybe Peter's over there. If you've already got your, like, you've done this a couple times, it comes, still comes up at 30, because mine still comes up at 30. Sam says he changed it or something. But um, so now there's no auto-filling, you know, at 30 or anything that happens for someone who's new that does this. But when I still have it 30, I, can, I don't know, I can't fix it on mine. Maybe I'm sure Peter can fix it in a second, okay, mine, but, but, I've, but mine's still a little populated at 30. But, you know, obviously I just change it every time. I don't know, Peter, do you have comments about this? I, mean, I, I think, as Rick and I have talked about, we, we probably could do some specific decision support. And we, we had talked about looking at the inpatient data. You know, if you, could, if you could somehow summarize that data and say, this person took five pills... You know, yeah. Here's the recommendation for discharge patients. That would be very cool. Obviously, there are difficulties because the system doesn't know who, who's being discharged for a lap unless mm -hmm. we tell the system that they have a lap So yeah. 
We may have to start with simpler kind of more general guidelines, but we've talked about doing some of that stuff. The, remember, the preference lists that everybody has are sort of a problem. Mm -hmm. Even though we might take the default to 30 on a system preference list, depending on what you've prescribed before, or if you have an individual preference that you built a long time ago, yeah. we actually have to get people to go in and kill their own old right. preferences to sort of start over again. But I agree that that's the, the way to handle this systematically is to have no preferences. Not certainly not to put in a number and mm -hmm. ask people to select each time. Yeah. yeah, and I think there's a lot of work that, that we can do along with this. Yeah, it's just a matter. Of, so we'll I'll come to your next meeting, Peter, and we'll, we'll work on this. All right. So, yes. Um, in a lot of cases, it looked like um, pain was managed uh, pretty well with non-opioids. Um, yeah. Has there been any investigation into using like? Tramadol that has like a lower diversion potential or lower use potential. Yeah, yeah. Tramadol is a little, you know, sort of. It's a you know very weak opioid, you know, and and uh, um, you know it's it's exactly its role is a little unclear right now. You know, I think um, the orthopedics guys use it a lot. Like actually, the study from UVM that um, I'm familiar with, they, a lot of their orthopedic surgeons were using tramadol a lot. Um, it, I I asked them actually did when I was reviewing their paper to do a sub-analysis to see if tramadol cut down the number, like the people who prescribed tramadol got less opioids too. They, I don't know, they couldn't do that for some reason. So there's still, it's a little unclear about how tramadol is going to roll in. I think um, medicines like gabapentin, okay, those, um, that's, that's, those you use pretty frequently. There's a, there's a wealth of data showing that if you give that preoperatively, people might feel a little more drowsy right after their surgery. That's a side effect of it, but, um, but it can um, pretty markedly decrease the opioids that are um, used after, okay? So, so um, you know, it's kind of rolling that stuff together in like a, um, you know, something that everybody agrees to, sort of like as preoperative meds is a little hard to, like, so I, I order Tylenol for all my patients pre-op, pre you know, so they get that, you know, um, now, but, uh, you know, and then give them Toradol intraoperatively, but, you know, potentially giving them some gabapentin. I mean, uh, sometimes anesthesiologists will just order that when I'm in the, in the outpatient surgery area, and, and I'm like, okay, cool, you know, let's see how it goes, you know, sort of. Um, uh, so I think, yeah, there's, there's, there's a, a lot of different things that can be put into play here. Yeah. John. Yeah. Great, nice talk. Thanks. Uh, I was curious, you, you sort of raised a red flag about those patients that a year out are still using, and it seems to me that by a year out, they're going to be pretty well addicted if they're still using. And I just was curious if, if we go on the premise that most patients by two to six weeks after surgery are going to be pretty well over their pain, have you thought about targeting folks at the two-week post-op check, those folks that are still really significantly using the opioids, yeah. seeing them at six weeks and then maybe 12 weeks and then trying to knock it, knock it off at the, you know, at the several weeks post-op time frame so those patients that... Um, really do raise red flags you can sort of deal with early on. Yeah, I think, again, I think we do have to um, study that more, John. Exactly, those people who are at, you know, a lot of those studies looked at it 90 to 180 days, actually, and they were showing that it was still about 10, about 10% were using it, that 90 to 180 days. Because you're right, people should, they should be over their pain, you know, really by then. And if they are still using it at, um, say, three months, you know, or, um, you know, or six months, that, that's, yeah, that's, I'm wondering who's prescribing that, you know, I mean, uh, you, you really shouldn't be, you know, because whatever, you know, whatever, you know, the pain of surgery is gone, you know, maybe, and whatever, unless the surgery didn't take care of the painful th stimulus that they had before surgery, I mean, maybe that's a, propor a small proportion of the cases, I'm not sure, but yeah, you're right, we need to intervene at like 90 days or something, and yeah. Yes, Taking the prior question further, have there been any studies looking at not using any opioids at all? Yeah, well, or looking at other countries that, that do surgeries that don't have ready access to opioids? Yeah, right. So, uh, yeah, a lot of, um, so again, a lot of our patients aren't using any opioids at all. You know, so, I mean, that's, that's come out of this. And again, like I said, I've heard the patient I'm doing lumpectomies or lumpectomy sensible nodes on. I don't give any of them opioids anymore, you know, um, uh, you know, and at least initially, you know, unless, and it's rare that anybody would need them after that. So I think there are definitely operations where you don't need to do any, if you use all, like, a whole bunch of other adjuncts to try to minimize that. And yeah, there are lots of other countries, you know, I, um, that don't use very much opioids. I mean, you know, so uh, um, uh, I, um, uh, a reviewer for one of our papers actually kind of asked us that, and, and I have to do the lit search a little bit on it, but, you know, in terms of what the common opioid prescribing is, but I, I think it just has to go with how, 
you know, opioids have been portrayed in the U.S. and how they've been marketed and, and all. It's, it's um, you know, it's, it's part of our culture, and I think it's really got to change. And, right, people in other countries get by without using a lot of opioids. It's a good point. Yes? I have a question that builds on that yep. about patient expectations. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that, that some fraction of those who continue to use opioids do it because they feel like that's probably the best thing for the pain when the data might suggest it's not. Mm -hmm. And so you've, uh, I'm sure, had to engage a large number of patients in this conversation. Hey, I think this might not be the best thing for you. Let's do it this other way yeah. and see what happens. How, how hard is that to, to win that conversation, to get them to come around to a different way of thinking about what's best for them? It's not hard at all in naive patients. Naive patients, it's easy. Okay, The patients, you know, again, the patients we excluded from here, you know, so um, is, is the chronic the chronic pain patients, you know, and there are, I, I Really like 10 million people out there who are chronic opioid abusers in the U.S. You know, at this point, they were you know, and so they come in, and they're already taking you know lots of uh, long-acting opioids. You know, and it's like, all right, how am I going to, you know, how am I going to deal with these patients, right? So they're they're a challenge, right? Because not only um, have they they have expectations that they're going to get their opioids every four hours, right? And they're watching the clock, right, until when it's four hours and getting their nurse to give them more opioids, okay, post-operatively. They're also tolerant so that, you know, they're going to have more pain. Um, you know, their pain is going to be worse, and, the, and the, we're going to have to give them actually more opioids to take care of their pain, okay? So um, I, was down, um, I was down at Johns, Johns Hopkins about three weeks ago um, giving uh, grand rounds there, and um, I met one of their anesthesiologists who's um, an anesthesiologist, uh, two anesthesiologists, a psychiatrist, and several nurse practitioners have this clinic that they've set up there. So anyone who's... A, a, long, a chronic opioid user bef who's going to have surgery will go to this clinic and they'll basically work with them. And, you know, a lot of the, you know, I think Brian Seitz here has also brought this up as an issue. A lot of patients who are chronic opioid users will have concomitant um, psychiatric issues like depression or anxiety or whatever. And so the psychiatrist works, will work with them and, and work on those, those um, psychiatric conditions that they can treat with, you know, non-opioid things. Um, and the pain specialists will work with them, and, and they can get a lot of them to really markedly decrease the number of opioids they're taking before their, you know, elective surgery. Um, and then they manage them in the hospital and post-op, okay? So it's, you know, it's a, so it just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an investment, you know, in a, in a, um, a group. But I think um, they were very optimistic how it's going. Um, I think a group in Toronto are doing something similar. Um, so... Uh, you know, I've talked to Mark Yeager about this a little bit and, uh, you know, and, and Bruce Vrooman and have tried to get um, them to, you know, potentially, uh, you know, do something similar for our patients here. And there was, uh, you know, some interest in that. Um, but it would be really nice to see something like that happening here, too, because, you know, I'm, uh, it's, uh, it's very difficult to manage those patients um, who are chronic opioid users. And that's part we want to try to prevent it, like, right, you know, by doing this stuff so that it's less of a problem. Yes, Pat, yeah. Um, I really appreciate this data, and it's very informative for um, when patients come back to us after surgery. Have you studied, or do you have a sense of the hazards of the handoff back to the primary care doc? Um, mm. I don't think many of us really have a good sense of some of this information and prescribing practices after surgery. Sometimes patients will come back to you, sometimes they come back to us, and that handoff can be kind of fuzzy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. You know, um, yeah, I mean, that's a broader issue, right? I mean, uh, overall, you know, when I see people back, I do my note, and, and I send it to the primary care provider, and I usually say, you know, hi, my notes and clothes, you know, blah, 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 did pretty well with surgery, you know, and, I, and that's, that's it. You know, I kind of, you know, whatever, that's, that's normally what I do. I don't know what every, all the other surgeons do, but... I'm wondering about something like a, a standard add-on that's sort of at the, the, the bottom of your yeah. post-op check note. Um, yeah. Uh, patients still taking opioids. Patient percent of patients are fully managed with the prescriptions that were given to them post-op. Right. I don't anticipate any additional medication needed or something simple right. like that. that yeah. Yeah, because like the patient could come to you and you could say, oh, why didn't Bart didn't give him enough opioids here? You know, what's the matter with him? You know, here, take 10 more and, you know, whatever. It's just sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I... I yeah, I mean, I I had to do a lot of education, for, like even in the in the recovery room. So I met with all the recovery room nurses, you know, and told them because 
they'd be getting the patient who's going home, and you know the, the resident would like write for you know five oxycodone, and the nurse would be like, oh, the resident's only giving you five oxycodone. What's the matter with them? You know, or something like you know they say stuff like this, and the patient you know so it's. I had to talk to all of them about this, you know, so that they understood that, okay, if you're only getting five or ten, that's good enough. You know, that's good. So, sure, I think that, yeah, we probably could. I don't know exactly um, what the form of that that would be most appropriate would be, but, um, uh, yeah, uh, to, keep, to keep you guys, um, I guess, thinking that, you know, the, well, the pain from surgery really should be gone now, you know, and maybe, and, and asking the patients, are you, you know, you're really liking these meds or, you know, what's, uh, you, know, uh, you know, what's making you feel good? Because... I mean, heroin was named heroin because people feel heroic on it. Okay, that's a fun, uh, interesting thing I learned when I was, you know, hearing some stuff about this. People felt heroic, so they called it heroin. Yeah. Thanks for a great discussion on prevention, on the treatment end. Uh, yeah. Um, the good news is that there's highly effective treatment for established uh, addiction, and uh, treatment with opiate agonists is, is, a, is highly effective with, with, with the number needed to treat of less than two compared to 20 for statins after their lives. So uh, this is highly effective method used more frequently. So I wanted to announce that uh, we just arranged a buprenorphine training to happen uh, May 25th here in Garland. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. So I think maybe given the hour, we should yeah. thank you for our viewers.